Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. From St. Louis Public Radio. This is Politically Speaking. When the Missouri legislature convenes for its annual session in January, there is a strong likelihood that tax reform is going to be a frequently visited area of policy. That's because the Speaker of the House recently established a committee that is examining both the earnings tax in St. Louis and Kansas City, as well as personal property taxes across Missouri. On this episode of Politically Speaking, Representative Peter Meredith joins the show. The St. Louis Democrat, who serves as the ranking minority member of the House Budget Committee, shares his thoughts on this newest wave of tax discussion. He also speaks about the state government's lack of action on gun control measures in the almost year since the school shooting at Central Visual and Performing Arts High School. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws, that they are balanced and they affect everybody equally. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio's State House and Politics reporter, Sarah Kellogg. Joining me in studio in St. Louis, he is the political correspondent for St. Louis Public Radio. Jason Rosenbaum. And joining us in studio, it is yet another all-in-studio show. <laughs> he is the uh, representative for the 80th District in the Missouri House. Peter Meredith. Thank you for joining us. Really Thanks excited for to, to have this show. It's fun we can all be in the same room, which doesn't happen uh, too often. I don't think we've done, I don't think I've done an in-person politically speaking with you since 2018. That might be right, or 17 even. Because yeah. in 2020, it was COVID. Yeah. And the last time you were on, I was on FMLA leave. So this is a true milestone. Yeah, it's nice to see you in here again. It is great to see you. <laughs> so let's get into it. We went a week away from this topic, but I'm bringing it back uh, mainly because you were outspoken about mm. this on Twitter. What were your thoughts on this year's budget, including the vetoes issued by Governor Mike Parson? Oh, that's a big question. You know, I, I will say this year and last year uh, were the best budgets we have had in my my time in Jeff City. Uh, it was a, a nice experience to have a surplus to work with, uh, largely thanks to the feds. Uh, federal spending really helped boost the economy, but also uh, meant we had some one-time money to work with. So both years, we had some pretty great outcomes. Now, when I say that, I say it with a caveat, great relative to Missouri and where we had been. You know, we still have the lowest funded um, K-12 education by the state of any state in the country, the lowest paid teachers uh, of any state in the country. And, and those are things that we made some progress on this year. Like we finally fully funded school transportation, which had been underfunded by a couple hundred million dollars. Um, and we fully funded the formula, which of course is out of date and low. Um, but those are good things. And, and we did raise the base minimum pay for teachers slightly, in, in reality, very little. But those are steps. Um, we also have the lowest paid state workforce, but we did do an 8.7% increase in pay, which is crucial. But all of these things, and I could go on and on and on about the things that we were the lowest in the country and all of that. And we did these raises, which we can celebrate, 
but they were only the amount of inflation for the year. So, you know, cost of inflation means that the cost of labor, the cost of goods goes up. So you just keep up with that. We stay at the lowest. We didn't really give these folks raises at all. So there were wins there, but they were muted by, um, by reality. There were also wins in, in the sense of public safety investments or a really big one this year was um, investing in early childhood education. This is something, of course, we've been pushing for for a long time. The governor came out with a proposal to try and move toward universal pre-K. That's exciting. Um, uh, public safety, like the, the investment in the new um, 911 center in St. Louis City was a big deal. There were those all over the board. Now, I will say the governor's vetoes disappointed us in that front. Um, there were a lot of those investments, youth summer jobs, public safety investments um, that he vetoed that I wish we could have overridden. Um, but he's not entirely wrong that our budget situation is about to change. You know, the Republicans have passed a billion and a half in tax cuts in the last year and a half with this surplus. That's going to catch up to us fast as we're trying to keep up with the cost of things. Um, we're going to find ourselves in a much worse position than we were even five years ago. And I'm I'm really worried about what that's going to look like for our state. Yeah, Governor Parsons said multiple times that he wanted to curtail that $555 million yeah. to protect future budgets and shortfalls. So you can, you are in a way agreeing with him on that? Yes and no. Um, you know, it's it's challenging to do that. Those Most of those vetoes were of one-time spending. And just sitting on that money in the bank is not really helpful for our state either. I think the real issue is that he shouldn't have signed and the Republicans shouldn't have passed those massive tax cuts, especially the income tax cuts, which were a billion dollars. I mean, that's a, a massive hole in our budget. Just five years ago, we were fighting over 25 million for senior services. And we're talking about a billion dollar tax cut where the bottom third of earners in Missouri won't see a penny of savings from it. And those of us that do, it might be like 50 bucks a year compared to what? We're going to have even worse funding for our schools, even worse funding for our roads and bridges. I, I mean, I, I'm worried about where that's going. But that was the mistake, not not as much the vetoes. What would what do you think was the most egregious veto from Parson? Uh, that's a tough call. Um, I, I, honestly, the one that bothered me the most was and being a St. Louis City rep was the the youth jobs. Um, there was a, a fairly big ask for spending for youth jobs in St. Louis City. That's a really important uh, way to address the root cause of violence and, and crime in our city, um, keeping kids busy with productive things. Um, and, I, you know, with other vetoes, he was upset that there wasn't enough of a local match. And weirdly, with that one, he said, well, there was actually so much of a local match that, that we really shouldn't be paying state dollars for this. And I was like, well, which is it? Uh, you want skin in the game. The city's putting a lot we can at least give a little to boost this. Uh, that, that really frustrated me. Um, I want to move. We were talking about taxes. I'm going to move back to taxes. So last week, House Speaker Dean Plocker said he was expanding a committee that is looking mm. into the earnings tax in St. Louis and Kansas City um, to also include personal property taxes. Yeah. You do not serve on this committee, but what are your thoughts on this expansion? No, and I'm not on this committee, but I was on a previous special committee on local taxes um, that met in the interim and learned a lot about personal property taxes and real estate taxes and, and learned they're a lot more complicated than most of us think, of course. Um, and I will say this is easy politics for a Republican that's running for lieutenant governor right now. Uh, people don't like taxes and personal property tax especially is a frustrating one to pay. Philosophically, it's a little confusing. Um, and earnings taxes are a great Republican soundbite to go after, right? But the trouble is, as we already talked about, the city needs revenue to be able to pay for all these things, especially because the state's not. And 
these are the primary revenue sources for the city, and not just our city, but others as well. And people care about their schools being funded, their fire protection districts and, and firefighters being funded, their police being funded. It's one thing to say personal property tax, as an example, isn't the ideal way to do that. But then you got to come up with a replacement. Now, earnings tax, that's even truer. I mean, it's it's the largest share of St. Louis City's revenue. And it is, in fact, the most progressive way to tax. Uh, so you get rid of that. All we're left with is having to raise things like sales taxes, which really hurt working families and poor families the most. We were talking with State Representative uh, Jim Murphy, who's the chairman of that special committee. And these were some of the alternatives that he suggested that could eventually replace the earnings tax. If our biggest problem with the earnings tax is we believe that it, it prevents growth in the city, we can certainly do things that uh, over time promote growth in the city. You know, if we did uh, enterprise zones where we said, if you came in and built a business here, we would exempt you from the earnings tax. If you build a new home in the city, we will exempt you from the earnings tax. If we did things that promoted growth with it, over time, you could you could phase down the earnings tax based on the new income that you're bringing in. So there's there's ideas like that 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 makes some sense because we need to grow this city again. What do you think of Representative Murphy's remarks there? <laughs> well, first of all, you you can't exempt someone from earnings tax if you're getting rid of the earnings tax. Uh, so both those things can't be true. But we already do tax abatement, right? There's tax abatement all over St. Louis. And sometimes it works, yeah. Sometimes it really doesn't. I mean, a lot of times it's it been shown to just incentivize developments that were going to happen anyway. Um, and if they're abated, you're not getting that revenue for quite a while. Yes, that is a tool in the toolbox that we do need to use and are using. But we can't suddenly dramatically increase that um, and expect it to mean more growth. We're using that tool arguably more than we should currently. Um, <laughs> it's not going to magically replace uh, the, the taxes that we collect currently. You know, Missouri voters in 2010 approved a measure requiring periodic votes on the earnings mm. tax. And so far, St. Louis and Kansas City residents have supported keeping that Overwhelmingly. tax in place. So haven't the people directly affected by the earnings tax already given it unambiguous support? Uh, that would be my opinion. Now, I will say the Republicans push back on that and say, well, people that work in St. Louis City don't have a vote on that. Yes, like me. Right. <laughs> and, and, and honestly, that's a fair criticism, I guess. But that's true of most of the taxes we pay. I mean, uh, I don't get to vote on the county next to mine's sales tax. But if I go shop there, I'm still paying it. And what happens when we keep getting rid of earnings taxes is sales taxes keep going up. That's why we have such high sales taxes in our state because our income tax keeps getting cut. Um, so you have to replace it somewhere. Uh, and right now, the the only place that I've seen people realistically propose replacing it with, I mean, when we have committee hearings on this topic and the billionaire-funded entities that come in, the Sinkfield Group and the Koch Brothers Group come in, what they say openly is, yes, they want to get rid of earnings taxes and income taxes and replace them with sales taxes. Well, guess what? Sales taxes are more regressive and hurt the people that need the help. One of the things the committee is looking into is remote work hmm. and that that whole issue. And I'll be I'll be very honest with you. Like <laughs> I could probably litigate that point because yeah. I really wasn't working in this studio that much during COVID. I'm not going to because we're talking about five or six hundred dollars. Yeah. However, with inflation going up. Five or six hundred dollars is becoming like a lot of money, sure. especially when the cost of food is going up as well. 
So do you see that as a particularly big threat to the earnings tax that if litigation goes through, you know, the courts and it's found that county residents are entitled to refunds if they were working remotely, that could have a real impact financially on the city. Absolutely could. Um, And, and, you know, I definitely understand that argument. I think it's a reasonable one. Um, But there is also an argument the other direction that the entity you work for is still located in the city. And uh, you're still using their facilities, even if you're not in the office. Um, and they're still based there. They're still they likely got tax abatement when they came in. I mean, back to that point. And so the fact is, they invested in being in St. Louis, and with an intention that their employees are using their headquarters there. Um, unless they actually leave St. Louis City, um, there is a strong argument that their employees should still have to pay that tax. And certainly, they on their end, they should be paying the payroll side of that tax. Still, I think it's a gray area. I'm curious to see what the courts decide. But what we do know is if we take a big financial hit from that, that revenue is going to have to be dealt with somewhere. And that's either cuts to services we care about or higher taxes somewhere else. So um, that cost is going to be there regardless. You, You know, we mentioned it's an election year. What do you make of taxes already looking to be kind of a center stage issue next session? <laughs> well, uh, I will say that's that's definitely right in line with what Republicans want in a uh, general election year. Uh, taxes, they've had 40 years of telling folks that all taxes are, are bad, um, that magically if we lower taxes, we're going to have more money as a state, which has never proven true. Um, but I do think people are starting to wake up a little bit to this. You know, we saw several years ago the Brownback tax cuts in Kansas that uh, saw a pretty bad backlash over a little bit of time because it they bankrupted the state. And the state was in trouble to the point that a number of Republican legislators switched parties and became Democrats over it. Um, I would say it's one reason they have a Democratic governor now. Now, the tax cut that we passed last summer in Missouri was basically the same tax cut as the Brownback tax cuts. Uh, and they're trying to go even further with these other tax cuts. So uh, I think it's possible people will start to wake up and go, no, I don't want the lowest paid teachers in the country. I don't want the lowest paid me- mental health workers in the country. We need to be able to pay for this. And the best way to do that is taxing folks that make a lot of money. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be right back. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking. Our guest today is Representative Peter Meredith, who is the representative for the 80th District in the Missouri House of Representatives. Want to get right back into it. We are recording this as the one-year anniversary approaches of the deadly school shooting at Central Visual Performing Arts High School. Representative, what are your thoughts at what the state has done in its wake? Well, I'm, I'm disappointed and a little bit ashamed in our state because we haven't done anything in the wake. Um, I mean, there have been some, some moderate talk of investments in school security, um, but we all know that's not going to fix this problem. Kids still go out on playgrounds, um, and if a shooter wants to get into a building, they're going to find a way to do it if they've got these massive weapons, and nobody can even stop them when they're on the street. Um, I, I mean, it, it shocks me that this year we couldn't even get them to agree that kids shouldn't be allowed to carry guns unsupervised on the street. I mean, any age. We talked about six, seven, eight, twelve, 12. 
And uh, I mean, at some point, yeah, that's that's not happening much. But 12 year olds, that is actually happening in our city. And when police literally can't do anything about it, and not only are they refusing to give them the tools to do something about it, but they pass the Second Amendment Preservation Act that would actually penalize police forces if they did something about it. The fact that they won't even have a hearing on a red flag law, um, which is what, you know, even a Republican state like Florida um, with a Republican governor and a Republican legislature passed after a school shooting there um, that would have prevented this shooting. Um, by most accounts, it would have prevented it. The fact that we can't even have a hearing on it. And instead, this year, they had a hearing on a bill to preempt any future federal red flag laws. I mean, it's shameful. Um, and we had these kids and teachers coming to the Capitol, desperately trying to be heard, and the Speaker of the House turning his back on them and not even listening, and uh, Republicans hiding from them in the hallways. I mean, it's exhausting and shameful, and I'm sorry. You mentioned the visit from the students from CVPA. You know, they visited. Many of them brought up red flag laws yeah. as something that would help. What are your thoughts on this resistance to them? As you said, it is passed another Republican state. Florida did this. Why do you think there is such a resistance? You know, in our state, in Republican politics and Republican primaries, there is this belief that any regulation on guns whatsoever, the, 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 the slightest regulation on guns, the slightest limit on guns um, or responsibility on gun ownership will mean a loss in a Republican primary because we have radical groups like the Missouri Firearms Coalition who will run ads saying you're against the Second Amendment. I mean, they did this against a couple of Republicans in the Senate this year um, who voted against the make murder legal bill, as we call it, which would have made it really hard to overcome a presumption of self-defense in court. Um, and they voted against their red flag preemption law. And so they call them rhinos. They attack them. They call them anti-Second Amendment. And these are, I mean, I, I talked to a lot of gun fanatics around the state, um, regular people like that own guns and love their guns. And consistently, they say, oh, yeah, I don't have a problem with having to have a permit for my guns. Well, yet not a single Republican will, will vote to require a permit. They all voted to get rid of the permit requirement to carry. Um, they all say, oh, yeah, I don't have a problem with you have to be 18. You have to be an adult or even 21, the same age to buy alcohol, to buy a gun. And yet no Republicans. I mean, red flag laws. I'll tell them if, if a family member goes to the police and says this person's in imminent danger uh, of killing themselves or others, uh, having police step in, that one gets a little bit more controversial, I will admit. But the vast majority of even responsible gun owners say, yeah, that we welcome that. And yet those same responsible gun owners often, if they see a mailer that says this Republican is anti-Second Amendment, they're not going to dig into what those bills were. They're going to trust that group called the Missouri Firearms Coalition and decide that person's against my gun rights and vote against them. That's the problem with our political process that is, is really leading to this absolutism, absolute extremism. Uh, in our approach to guns in the state. I want to talk about red flag laws, which, as you mentioned, is essentially a judicial process that would allow a court to disarm somebody who's yeah. in danger to themselves or others. Yeah. This is a point from former Congressman Billy Long that I have thought about for well over a year since he has brought it up in a previous uh, podcast. And I, I want you to address it after I play this clip. But my biggest problem with red flag laws is I always see the face of one of my colleagues 
that went through just a horrendous divorce abusive situation several years ago and anytime red flag laws are brought up she points out she says that she she claims and i imagine it's the truth she said that uh you know they could have taken her gun away from her at that point which was the only thing that kept her uh from you know meeting her demise and her word i understand that that's hypothetical mm -hmm. But there are many instances where couples that are in a horrendous divorce or separation lie about things. How do you prevent something like that from happening if you implemented a red flag law? Sure. Well, this is you know this is similar. Um, there are a couple of concerns about red flag laws that I, I do think are legitimate hypotheticals. That's one. There's also the question of whether it gets enforced against um, minority groups and and low income folks. Um, uh, by police as a discriminatory way to take their weapons. I, I think both of these have some validity. The, the thing I will say, though, is uh, especially in this this hypothetical that he presented of, of, of uh, an abusive relationship, you know, most of the country has where if you have a restraining order against somebody in a domestic violence situation, they can remove their guns. And there's really very little evidence of it being abused in that way. Um, and, and that's because... You have to have the police involved and agreeing that you have probable cause. You also have a 24-hour – within 24 hours in Florida's situation, for example, you are entitled to a hearing in front of a judge to say this isn't fair and there is not probable cause for this gun to be taken or I need it for self-defense for this reason. Um, most abusive partners aren't going to risk themselves getting caught up in legal trouble with the police and the judge having to hear from the spouse – no, they're actually abusive. And actually, if we're going to get you involved, then they're the ones that need to be – they're the danger right now. Um, that's, that's rare. And the fact is for discriminating or abusing somebody, there are, if, if you've got the aid of the police on your side, there are a whole lot easier ways to do it and worse ways to do it than taking your gun. And what I find extra fascinating about this is it's already easier to – to have police take away somebody's freedom and actually lock them up in jail for days than it is to have them simply take their guns from them. Which one do you think warrants more scrutiny, the police ability to, to, to cuff me and take me and throw me in jail for a week or the police ability to say, you're not safe with that gun right now? Personally, I'd rather that be easier than me losing my freedom. Last session, you proposed a package of bills related to gun reform in response. You know, they didn't go yeah. anywhere. Yeah. I don't believe in they got a hearing. I want you to walk through them. What did they do? Sure. Well, so one was this red flag law um, that we've just talked at length about. Another was making it so that you have to be 21 to buy or carry a gun in public. Um, I figure if you have to be 21 to drink, we've decided that is the age of maturity to responsibly buy alcohol or drink it in public. That should match with guns, that they're really – that should be the responsible age there as well. Um, I had a bill to restore um, uh, the permit requirement uh, to carry in public. This is something that law enforcement has told me several times is one of their most important tools to reduce the number of guns on the street um, in a city like St. Louis, well, really all over the state where we're facing a lot of gun crime. Um, they used to be able to, um, if they pull someone over and they've got a gun or they stop somebody for something and they have a gun and they don't have a permit, well, they'd take that gun. Guns are expensive. So most of these kids that are causing the problems where we're, we're having crime all over uh, with gun crime, 
it's expensive to replace. So they don't end up having the gun. So it means less gun violence on our streets. Well, since they have no way to take the guns in the first place now to check if somebody is a law-abiding citizen, a responsible gun owner, then we just have our streets flooded with guns. That one would go back in. I also had one to um, uh, make it so that we have universal background checks. You know, in the CVPA shooting, this kid uh, had severe mental health challenges and they, in fact, sought a bed, but uh, because we don't have staff, as we already talked about, um, they weren't able to get him help. Uh, but he was flagged so that when he went to buy a gun, he actually failed a background check. But in Missouri, we don't require background checks uh, if you're not from a federally licensed dealer. So he just went and bought a gun, I would guess, from you know arms list. I think that it was reported that way, um, where no background check was required. And so he got these uh, you know assault weapons, uh, and a background check could have prevented him from getting it in the first place. But then even if he still got it, we had this scenario where his parents called the police and said, please do something about this. He is dangerous. Um, we can't overpower our 19-year-old. Um, uh, He's an adult, and uh, we need you to take the gun. And the police said, we can't. We don't have that ability in Missouri. And then the last one would overturn the penalty on – it would undo the penalty they put on police officers for enforcing federal gun laws. Um, that's one of the other reasons that police – their hands are tied in trying to deal with gun violence. They're very worried about these enormous lawsuits that would come from violating the Second Amendment Preservation Act if they do what they think is necessary for safety and allowed under federal law but not explicitly allowed under state law. So in a situation with a Republican supermajority that is not yeah. passing legislation like this, what legislation do you think is feasible for Missouri to pass regarding safety in schools? You know, I think any of them on that list are feasible for us to pass by ballot initiative. I think that they're popular in our state, and I think if we could gather the signatures, they all have a path to pass. Um, on a political level right now, I don't see a realistic way for any of these to pass. And so where we have to talk is about um, funding for things at the root cause, which is also a challenge because as we talked about funding, money is a challenge for Republicans to spend. Um, things like investing in diversion programs and youth jobs and training programs um, those can go a long way. Um, making sure that our schools are well-funded and our, our teachers are well-paid and fully staffed, that can go a long way. Making sure we have extracurricular programs and after-school programs, which were largely cut for money in St. Louis City a decade ago. Um, having those things for kids to do after school, um, when St. Louis City opened the community centers late into the night, it actually helped with our crime problem, but that takes money. Our state could help support that. Um, so I, I will focus as much of my energy in my last year on that as on gun laws. Um, but I will say there is one gun law that has at least privately received some bipartisan attention, and that's this idea of addressing the under 18. And maybe there's a path for doing it by restoring a permit requirement for under 18, which essentially means you, you had to be 19 to get a permit um, back until 2016. Uh, so if you restore that for at least minors, you're by default making it so that an unsupervised minor who's not involved in a specifically authorized hunting program or something can't be out with a gun in public. So moving on to next year, do, do you think that the legislature will bring up another effort to make the Constitution more difficult to amend, especially after that idea failed so miserably in Ohio? It's a good question. Um, they sure seem to to be saying they're going to. 
Um, so many of the Republicans are running on that still and very loudly saying that's their priority. Look, I, I think last session, we had a lot of wins as Democrats. Um, it was actually a pretty good, like the outcomes of last year, other than a couple of absolutely atrocious bills that deeply offended me and, and endangered kids, in my opinion. Um, we had a lot of success. One of those successes was stopping bills like the ballot initiatives, um, the, the attempt to gut ballot initiatives. And when I say that's a win for Democrats, I don't even mean partisan win. I mean, small d, it's a win for democracy. Our state is fortunate to have a foundation on a direct vote of the people. Our constitutions have always been passed. Our amendments to the constitutions have always been passed by direct vote of the people. And people always have a way to bypass a legislature that's not listening to them with the ballot initiative. Republicans are trying to get rid of that, whether explicitly or by by making it so hard that it's virtually impossible to do. So it, it's not even really a secret anymore. Some of the Republicans were pushing this because they wanted to essentially head off at the pass an abortion yep. legalization measure. And and the reason why it's not a secret anymore is the Speaker <laughs> of the House basically said that. The last day of session. I, I want to take this conversation in a different direction, though, because as of recording, we still don't know what the right. actual initiative is going to be. Hmm. And I think that there is kind of a split among abortion rights proponents between people that want to pass something that is more incremental and may have a better chance of actually passing among voters are people like Colleen McNicholas of Planned Parenthood of the St. Louis region in southwest Missouri who are arguing that since that type of initiative that's incremental is going to get attacked by anti-abortion rights people anyways, that they should go big, basically. Here's a clip of her talking about that. Look, the truth is we know that pregnancy is incredibly complicated and can get more so as pregnancy goes on. We know that there is when we think about sort of the best ways to take care of people throughout pregnancy, we know that the least qualified people to do that are people who are sitting in Jefferson City. We really need the flexibility for physicians, for patients and their families to be able to consider just how complex the information is that they're getting. We need them to be able to make decisions about their health, about their life, about the future and vitality of their family based on scientific evidence. And the science just says that anytime we impose artificial and, and, and made up restrictions, whether it be gestational age or otherwise, we are really doing a disservice to patients and really sort of handcuffing both they and their, their physicians in making the best scientific evidence-based evidence uh, decisions for their health. So what McNicholas is talking about there, and she's been very outspoken about this nationally, is she believes that any abortion initiative should not have a specific weak mm -hmm. limit when someone should get an abortion. Now, what other people would say is, that will be easily attacked by Republicans, and people may not be comfortable with this. So, okay, there was a <laughs> lot of things that went into this question. Yeah. So to simplify it, what do you think would be more likely to pass? The incremental approach or something that, like, what McNicholas wants? I'll be honest. First of all, I'm probably not the person that should be answering this. Right. as somebody that can't get pregnant. But I, I will say politically, um, I think that argument can be made either way. Now, I tend to agree that um, putting in too much detail and too much line drawing in the Constitution is probably something that gives people more reason to vote against it one way or the other because the line isn't exactly what they want versus putting a principle in there. And I, I like that she talks about making it about what is science-based, evidence-based, and supported by the medical community 
And um, this is where, I mean, I, I would apply it to some of the other issues we've been talking about this year, too. I would personally love to see something that protects a person's right to make private medical decisions if, it's, if they have their support, their guardian's support if they're under 18, um, their, their medical professional support, and the support of the medical community. So if all of those things fall in line, so you've got the evidence-based medical community support, the individual assessment of a doctor, and what the person wants themselves – the government should have no say in that. And now that that gets complicated, I realize it. And and line drawing is hard on an issue like this. But I do think she's she's right that drawing too fine a line can get complicated. Now, now yeah, backing yeah. up though, politically, yes, we've seen polling that a more moderate version has a better chance of passing. But we've also seen evidence that um, that supporters of abortion rights are going to be more actively supportive, may turn out in higher numbers, and and you may have fewer um, stray from it if you have a more emphatic uh, protection than a moderate one. So I think you can argue politically either one might have the better outcome. Now, I understand that any abortion initiative is going to get attacked from multiple angles. Of course. Even the moderate one, which, which at most would have 12 weeks, mm -hmm. has been – characterized by some opponents of abortion rights as you can get an abortion at any time because it has a health or a health or uh, life of the mother exception. But if there is no specific week limit, and I, and I understand the nuance of this, mm -hmm. the reason why w women would get an abortion after 24 weeks or 26 weeks involves like a catastrophic mm -hmm. incident in their pregnancy. But you, you are well aware that opponents of abortion rights are going to say, this will allow people to get an abortion anytime at any point. Like, how do you combat that message if there's no weak limit? Look, I mean, <laughs> that's that's the the most important question in politics right now. How do you combat lies and propaganda? I mean, that is the nature of this job right now. And it's it's by having the conversations, getting into the nuance and trying to engage people who are busy and, and busy with their lives. Um, who may not have more time to listen to a political debate on a subject that might they might not feel like affects them. Um, it, it, it's hard. It's hard to to fight people that don't care what truth is and will just say whatever they think is most politically expedient for their agenda. And I wish I had a magic answer for for combating that, but the only one I've got is, we have to have the conversations. Do you think that actually any abortion-related initiative will make it to the ballot, given that there's a lot of legal hurdles that are being put forth by, you know, challenges over the fiscal note, yeah. really unfavorable ballot summary that is yeah. that is, uh, which which I obviously understand why that's prompting litigation, yeah. and it's not the fault of the the proponents of these initiatives. No, it's Secretary of State right. who is actively trying to put barriers in the way, as he does every time, to. Voters actually having their say in a democratic process on what the law should be. But do you think that it will work because they only have until May to get 171,000 signatures? I sure hope not because if we get nothing on the ballot, whether it's an incremental approach or a more protective approach, the reality is the situation we have in Missouri right now is dangerous and unhealthy. It's, it's bad for pregnant people. Um, it's hurting our medical community. We are having doctors leaving, um, and it's leaving people in danger and without access to care. Um, that is not an acceptable place to be, and we have to have an option on the table uh, for voters to be able to express uh, what they want to have happen 
uh, what, again, whether it's a more moderate or a more incremental or more all-out approach to protect them, something has to be on there. Uh, and I do think the advocates will make sure something gets there. Um, but Ashcroft is certainly doing everything in his power to get in the way of that. We have so many more questions, but we are out of time. Thank you so much, Representative Meredith, for joining us on the show. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And Representative Meredith, where can people find you on the internet where you want to be found? (laughs) Sure. Well, they can always email me, although I'm not always great on my emails. But uh, Facebook and Twitter, um, I try to be pretty active on. And during session, I do a lot on TikTok, actually, these days of uh, sharing videos of what's actually happening in session if people want to see some of the debates, uh, the good, bad, and the ugly. All right. Until next time. So long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.